Maybe you know the phrase, good fences make good neighbors. Yeah, good fences make good neighbors. You ever heard that? What does it mean? <laughs> it's kind of confusing because I'm like, fences, like how's it good? good? Good fences make good neighbors. It can kind of be taken on, on a spectrum, okay? On like the negative view says, good fences make good neighbors because I don't like people. <laughs> I would much rather have a privacy fence and I don't want to see your face and listen to you and smell your cooking and I don't want to even, I want to hide in my house. And they're like, that's the American way, isn't it? Like we went from picket fences and front porches to like privacy fences and back decks. Like that's how the culture has shifted. So sometimes good fences make good neighbors can actually be kind of taken kind of negative. On the positive though, it's an old phrase and it kind of means like we got our boundaries, we know our space and we can respect each other. This is my area, this is your area, but we work together on this. It actually comes from an old uh, poem by Robert Frost called Mending Walls. And I want to share a little bit about this because the context of this poem is interesting. It comes out of a context where two like farmers are working together on this stone wall between their properties. And throughout the year, like stones will fall off, kids will jump over the wall and break it a little bit. Maybe some horses or cows will bump into it. It needs some repair. And so ironically, the very thing that separates them, this wall, is the thing that brings them together because they got to work on it together. And so good fences make good neighbors. That's, that's deep. That's pretty interesting. Um, in that poem that says good fences make good neighbors, there's this kind of stanza I want to read to you because I think it really resonates with who we are as a church family. Let, let me read this stanza. It says this. Before I built a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out. And to whom was I like to give offense? Something there is that doesn't love a wall, that wants it down. We value tearing down walls. It's one of our five core values. If you look out in the lobby by the coffee bar, I've talked about it a few times in the last few months. And we're starting a new teaching series today. About a year and a half ago, we did a teaching series called Above and Beyond. And this is sort of like a sequel to that series. Uh, uh, the whole idea of Above and Beyond was to like, let's talk about some non-negotiables as a church family. How do we move forward in faith and with purpose? And it was really as a big buildup into moving into a new building. How do we maintain like the, uh, the DNA and the heart that we had when we were mobile and we were at the YMCA to now being totally different? Like this is a different experience for us as a church family. And we said we want to be an above and beyond type church. It comes from the book of Ephesians where it says that our God is a God that can do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. And we want to be that type of person who has that type of faith, an above and beyond kind of faith. So our actions need to be above and beyond. So this series, I'm just calling it Living Above and Beyond, which is just kind of a, a part two of the above and beyond. And what I want to do in this series is really kind of ramp up and kick off towards like this going to two services thing and towards, uh, you know, Having new people in our church who maybe don't even know what we're about. Like, let's talk about the five core values that we have on our wall and that we mention all the time. And let's take a deep dive. What does the Bible say about these values? Like, is it biblical? It is. I promise you, we wouldn't have them up there if it wasn't. But like, why? And what does it mean for us uh, individually on a personal level? So today, we value tearing down walls. Let's talk about that. Each week we look to the Bible for God's most important truth. So if you've got a Bible, grab it, open it up. We've got free Bibles in the lobby. If you ever want to grab one to use for a service or take it home with you, that's fine. Look it up on your phone. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 today, and we're looking at kind of a, a monumental passage of Scripture. This is Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going all the way through verse, I think, 14 together today. 
And I want to just read a big chunk of that. Let me tell you, if you don't know the background of what is the book of Ephesians, it's in the New Testament of your Bible. So that's the last like third of our Bibles. And this period is the period where the church is, has been established and is beginning to grow. And the early church leaders are writing letters to baby churches and explaining like, here's some things you should know, here's some things you should do, here's some things you should maybe not do. And the book of Ephesians lands in a place where the apostle Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus uh, was a, was a, uh, a port city. Uh, today, it's interesting, the, the Mediterranean Sea has moved, so it's not even a port city anymore. It was a very big, very influ- influential city, a place where, uh, where, where the church grew quickly, and they're having a problem with walls. That's really what the whole book is about, and we're going to start in Ephesians chapter 2. My goal is to land at verse 14, so if you're going to cheat and look ahead, you can see like, oh, this is, this is good stuff, but I want to get us to the context of that. Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 1, and let's just read it. Paul says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and in your sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us used to live among them at one time. We gratified the cravings of our flesh. We followed the desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath. So it kicks off this monumental passage. It's basically giving us a history lesson on who we are and where we came from. And it goes down, if, if you were here for the series we wrapped up last week, Live No Lies, and when we talked about the flesh, we talked about the spiritual war that goes on in our life that try to, makes us live in, in opposition to God. And he's saying, listen, you guys were all like that at some point in your life. Maybe you've heard the phrase, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Have you ever heard that phrase? It's old school. It's been around for a long time. And what that means is like, we're all the same. We all come from the same starting point. Whether, whether you uh, have big sin or small sin in your life, if you have sin in your life, when we stand before our God, the ground is level. Ain't nobody better than nobody else. We're just standing up being like, look, man, we're all in the same boat together. That's basically what he opens up with, saying, listen, you, you were once dead in your transgressions and sins. You all were. When you were living like that, when you were doing those things, in fact, you deserved the wrath of God. That's hardcore language from the Apostle Paul. You, de- you, were, you were deserving the wrath of God. But listen, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. So we're not throwing stones. We're not calling names. We're just saying things as they were. And then verse 4 kind of turns the corner. It gives a story of how God offers us some forgiveness and grace. Verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in our transgressions, it's by grace that you've been saved. And God raises us up with Christ and he seats us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages, he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us through Christ Jesus. For it's by grace that you've been saved through your faith. And listen, this is not something that you did. This is not of yourself. It's a gift from God. It's nothing that you worked for. You didn't earn it. So nobody can brag about it. But we're God's handiwork. And we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. And so check this out. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all start at the same place. Your sin is, you know, separates us from God. It makes it difficult. But also, after Jesus, the ground is level after Jesus. 
There's no hierarchy in the kingdom of God. It's like, listen, you, my friend, you, my friend, get to stand on a pedestal. You, my friend, get to be special in the kingdom of God. Yes, there are leaders and there are people who take all kinds of uh, you know, positions of, and, and teaching and all this kind of stuff. But what he says is, listen, all of you who were by objects deserving of God's wrath, all of you needed God's grace. All of you need God's forgiveness. All of you need God's love. None of you worked for that on your own. You didn't earn this. The ground's level. We're all the same. Ain't nobody special. So it's really interesting to kind of look at this even thing. And, and here's the thing. We are encouraged after we accept Jesus and after our sin is forgiven and after we're like living in that grace. We are encouraged to grow. We are encouraged to challenge one another. We are encouraged to have accountability. Are there some people doing better in their faith than others? Well, yeah. Yeah, and that's, and that's maybe obvious sometimes. But it's not something that we can hold over someone else. I'm better than you. I've got it more together than you do. The church of Ephesus in the Bible was having a problem with walls. Because there were some of the Christians in the group who were like, I'm better than you. <laughs> I've got my stuff figured out better than you do. Now, primarily, there's a group of people who were Jewish Christians. So they had been Jewish by faith. And then as the Messiah comes and the church begins to grow, these Jewish Christians go, oh, that, that makes sense. I'm going to serve Jesus now too. So they become Christians. Then there's a group of people who didn't grow up in the Jewish faith. They grew up in some pagan religion or with no faith at all. And so they come into the group and they become Christians too. And the Jewish Christians in Ephesus were saying, listen, yeah, I got, Jesus is great. Jesus is great. He's great. But also, you need to be a little bit more Jewish. <laughs> Because, like, there's some things that we do that's a little bit better. And so they were, like, holding these ceremonies and ordinances and, and Mosaic law, Old Testament law, over these Gentile believers. And so Paul steps in. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, no, no. Jesus is enough. Okay? You're not a better believer because you have some more history. You're not a more, you know, prestigious leader in the church because you've taken some extra steps with Judaism. Jesus is enough. So there's this wall. And so that's why we, we're going to skip ahead a few verses now and get into verse 13. And Paul says this, so now, now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one. And he's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Something there is that doesn't love a wall and wants it torn down. That's our scripture for this week. Sometimes I'll read a passage and I'll break it down and we'll get really deep into some, some parts of it. But man, that's it. it it's fairly self-explanatory. I've talked through Ephesians 2 it's, you know, a bunch of times here. And I would encourage you to go. That's a good passage in the Bible. Any part of Ephesians chapter 2, if you want to memorize scripture or study it, it's all good. It's really good. It's really important because it tells us the story of who Jesus is. But let's talk about what it means for us today to live in that world where the dividing wall, the barrier has been torn down by Jesus? And how do we as the church respond to the world outside of our walls, our figurative and literal walls, and help bring them in? When we first started Venture Church over 10 years ago, we had this kind of foundational idea. There were over 300 churches that I know of in Wilmington. And so we said, okay, well, do we need to plan a church? Like, is this even a thing that should happen? The answer is yes. There, will, there are still a lot of people in our city who aren't part of a church family and for whatever reason don't have any interest in being part of a church. So we developed this phrase. We started using it. Other churches have used it before us. We said, we are church for people who don't like church. You ever heard that phrase? Anybody heard that? We're church for people who don't like church. What does that mean? People would say, like, I mean, I, 
I kind of like church. Does that mean I can't come to your church? <laughs> no, no, we love our church. We love church. We love what Jesus does for us. But the whole thing is there's like some baggage a lot of people have. Some of you are like, yeah, uh, I had baggage. Or I'm still working through baggage with the church. And so when people say, what is church for people who don't like church? This is kind of the answer that we developed. Well, we want to help tear down the walls that have kept people away from church and God so that we can build a bridge to Jesus. There are reasons people have you know, uh, been resistant to the church. There are reasons people have wanted to stay away from it. So we want to tear down those walls, and we want to build bridges to Jesus. Now, here's the thing. Over 2,000 years of church history, a lot of stuff has been added. Like we say, Jesus is enough. But then we, we've added a lot of stuff. Over 2,000 years, a lot of traditions get added, a lot of vocabulary, a lot of different things you know, get added to the thing. And, and not all of them are bad. Did you know the first century church didn't celebrate Christmas? I for one, think it's a pretty cool Christian holiday. Like, I like it. I like, I like Christmas. Is it necessary? Is it essential to understanding Jesus and going to heaven? No. No, it's not something the other church focused on. Jesus never like, listen, most important thing, you need to sing me happy birthday. Okay, every year, I want you to sing me happy birthday. If you don't do that, I don't want it. Like, the early church was more focused on the resurrection, and, and as we should be. It should be the primary thing. But that, you know, but it's not bad. It's not bad that it's been added to church. It's been added to tradition. Here's another thing. Churches originally didn't have centralized facilities. They didn't have buildings. They were operating out of people's houses, and they were sharing space, and they were doing all kinds of stuff. But buildings have been a useful thing that churches have made great use out of. And so not everything that's been added, uh, not every, not a, the early church didn't have uh, printed Bibles. Um, you know, they had no printing press, and the New Testament was still being written. And so they didn't have that. But, you know, often we'll be like, you know, I've heard people say, you, you guys struggle with your trinity of uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scriptures. Sometimes we leave out the Holy Spirit and we're like, the Bible is God. I mean, it's, it's not. The first church didn't even have the Bible. Is, is it useful? Oh, yeah. I don't know what I would talk about on a Sunday morning without it. But, you know, it's these things that we've added on that are good. These are good things. These are good things. But there's also things that have been added on that have kept people away from church and away from God. And those are the things that we want to make sure that as a church family we tear down. These are walls. Let me give you some examples. And these are ones that we intentionally, I hope that every week I can point to one or two examples of how we as a church family are doing this. It's part of our DNA. Some of it might be stuff like you don't even recognize. You're like, oh, I didn't even notice you did that. I'll tell you about three or four walls that we try to tear down. One is the wall of confusion. I, it's been said by many people who don't have Christian backgrounds, who come to churches, and they're confused the whole time. Like with people, sometimes we stand up and sometimes we sit down and then there's songs and you guys all know the words and I don't know where to find the words and I didn't even get a program and I don't know what to do and there's things they don't understand. Or like, for example, uh, one thing we try to do to tear on the wall of confusion is to bring clarity. So like communion, communion is a, can we be real about this? Communion is kind of a strange tradition. Once a week, we all eat a little piece of cracker and we drink a little cup of juice and like we feel real good about ourselves after we do that. Isn't that a little bit like just strange, like all by itself? But man, it's got a rich context we're not going to skip communion. We're not going to not do it. The early church did it every single week. We do it every single week. But you know what we can do to ease the confusion? You might notice every single week someone explains communion from our stage. Every single week. Sometimes you might be like, Chris, I think you said that exact same thing last week. If I'm doing what I plan to do, I absolutely said almost the same thing I said last week. Because guess what? It might be somebody's first time. And there's no reason they should be confused by something so important to us. I've had people from our church family who grew up in the church who, until they started attending here, were like, I didn't really understand why we did communion until you guys started explaining it every week. Man, how cool is it? So uh, we can tear down the wall of confusion. It's not necessary. It puts walls up. Here's another wall that we try to tear down. We try to tear down a wall of hypocrisy and self-righteousness. 
I want to tread lightly here because any of these, I, I, I never want to be one that throws stones at other church families. That's not ever my goal. I just think that everyone needs to look in their own context and say, how can we do the best we can to reach people? And it has been said that one of the number one reasons people don't want to be involved in church is because of hypocrisy. Let me make something very clear. There are no perfect people in this room, okay? And so if anyone came in here expecting us all to have our stuff together all the time, I'm very sorry to disappoint you, but we are trash. <laughs> We're going to disappoint you, okay? Uh, but we also don't have to fake it and act like we do have it all together all the time. And so there are many times where someone from a stage like this will come and make you feel like this small because they have all their stuff put together, and then later you see them in life, and they're not living it out. And that's not fair. And that's been a wall that has been put up. And so one of the ways we try to tear down that wall is just be as, as transparent and as genuine as we possibly can be. I tell you what, you've been here coming here long. You know that I've shared some deep, dark stuff that you're probably like, I can't believe he said that in front of a group of people. Because I think it's important for our leaders to lead and go first and say, listen, I've got my own baggage, I've got my own brokenness, but by the grace of God, I take a next step every day. And so I hope that you hear that in your small groups and in the people that you're with. And so we can tear down that wall by just saying, yeah, we, we don't have it all together, but we have a God who does. And so we lean on him and we're trying to grow in that. And so that, that's the wall we try to tear down. Another wall we try to tear down, this is important. I don't know what to name this wall, so I'm calling it Extra Steps to Jesus. It's been a thing in the church for a lot of times is that someone has just these things that they can't, it's a hurdle they can't come over because there's these expectations that they need to do something first. I've heard this phrase. I want to come be part of the church. I want to grow. But man, my life's a mess right now. So let me get my stuff cleaned up over here and then I'll come to Jesus. And the problem is that that's absolutely backwards. You don't clean yourself up to come to Jesus. You come to Jesus to get yourself cleaned up. Like you're like, I can't wash myself. That, that is God's role with our soul. And so we don't need to add extra steps. Other steps, these are more like uh, superficial, but like a dress code. Like, I get it. I get it. We want to give God our best, and to some people that means dress to the nines, and that's really good. There's no shame in that. Come dress to the nines. That's fantastic. But it's not a requirement for being part of the kingdom of God. Look at the people Jesus hung out with. The, the, the people that Jesus hung out with are often some of the poorest and, and, and pushed away people in his culture. And so it's very common for us to have these steps that we put in life. Another step is someone wants to come to Jesus. They want to have, have his grace and all the stuff in their life. Uh, but then the church is like, yeah, well, first you have to take like a 15-week class first. And, and then and until you pass the class, and then you're going to sign this covenant with us. Because, man, the only way that you can, we will baptize you, but you've got to become this denomination first. I mean, none of that stuff happens in the Bible. None of that. Literally, a guy who was uh, living probably in pagan culture in Ethiopia is riding with one of the disciples at one point. He gets read scripture. He understands it. And he goes, look, there's water. <laughs> What's stopping me from getting baptized? And Philip doesn't go, oh, well, hold, hold your roll, buddy. We got, we got a six-week class, uh, and then we're going to put you with a mentor, and then we got to get the pH of the water just right. I'm guaranteeing you that was just like some lake on the side of the road, and they went for it. And then guess what? We get to grow from there, from a place of salvation. And so... We want to tear down the wall of extra steps. There's another one. This is maybe the biggest one for some people. It's the stigma of money and the church. I'm, I will tell you, my opinion is that the vast majority of the church handles money just fine. <laughs> but unfortunately, there's been some bad eggs who've made bad reputation, especially people in a position like mine who make decisions with money. And I'll never forget when I first moved here, I, I didn't have an office until we got this one here, and so I'm constantly doing my meetings and stuff in coffee houses, and there was this guy that I connected with, an older guy, he was like in his mid-70s, 
And sadly, I, th I think he passed away. I didn't have a way to keep up with him during the pandemic. And then some people told me that it's no longer with us. And, but man, I, I built a, a really good relationship with this guy. And for a while, I kind of, I'll keep it secret that I'm a pastor. Uh, because that's a really good way to kill a friendship. <laughs> Just so you know. Uh, because everybody's like, oh, can't hang out with him. I'm like, I promise you I'm normal. Like, um, but, uh, you know, but he found out I was a, a preacher. And, um, and he said, well, you know what, preacher? I'm, and then from then on, I don't even think he remembered my name. He just called me preacher. <laughs> all right, preacher. And so uh, my man was like Andy Griffith in the flesh. It was so, he's like, all right, preacher, I'll tell you what. I'm going to save you some time here, buddy. And he said, uh, he said I got two things I need you to know. It's going to save us some time. It's going to help our friendship. Number one. I'm never coming to your church. <laughs> he said, I know you're going to invite me. You're going to try to get me to come to Easter and Christmas and a picnic, but I'm not trying to come. I was like, oh, okay, all right. He said, because I don't believe in it. I said, all right. He goes, that brings me to my second point. I don't believe in it. And he reached in his pocket, and he opened his wallet. This is a real story. He took out a $20 bill, and he put it on the table between us. We're sitting down at the same table, $20 bill. And he told me a story about uh, as when he was a younger man, he and his family were involved in a church, and, and, and the preacher got caught in, in embezzlement, and uh, there was this story about how he would take the offering plate and put money in his pockets. I don't know. It's all this stuff, and he was just like, so here's the thing. I know that uh, all you want out of the people is money, so I'm going to save you time. I'm going to go and give you mine, let you know I'm not coming to your church. That's the last bit of money you're getting out of me. Never in the history of coffee houses and $20 bills has a $20 bill set more awkwardly on a table. And I was just like, I ain't picking it up. Ain't no way. Ain't no way I'm touching that money. And he's like, take it, man. I'm just messing with you. You're a good guy. I'm sure you got good things in mind. Yeah, I just, but I'm not coming to your church. I was like, I, 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 I'm not taking that. You can, you can have it. You can, you can buy me some coffee if you want to, but I'm not, I'm not touching that money. And eventually he was like, well, okay. And he puts it back in his pocket. And then he starts like trashing the Dallas Cowboys because that's all he wants. That's all he wanted to talk about. He was a Redskins fan. Um, but, man, uh, here, that's, I say that anecdotally to make us laugh, but, man, we got to laugh because otherwise we need to cry. There's an opinion by many people that the church is just out there to get your money. And if you've been hanging out here long, you know that the number one way we deal with greed is through generosity. Our finance team that manages our money is like, look, we give away, give away, give away first. I, I'm pretty sure that we would that we would like, slow down a programming or do something different with staffing before we would stop being generous to the kingdom of God. And that's, that's not even, that's, that's something that, you know, I hope that I help build into our finance team, but that's what our finance team believes. And so every year we're like, how can we do more? How can we do better? How can we make sure people are taken care of? And so that's a wall that's got to be torn down. Something there is that doesn't love a wall. It wants it torn down. And so what do we do? I think the solution is, we build bridges to Jesus. Let's build bridges to Jesus. That has been always our role. That's been always our thing. If we're going to be living above and beyond, we've got to be a people who are constantly looking for ways to build bridges to Jesus. And so if you have a friend in your life who's got you know, walls and barriers up between them and the church, then just dig into that. Don't be like, oh, okay, cool. We can't talk. Be like, well, let's talk. Let's talk. I mean, okay, all right, maybe this is coming from a place. Maybe this is coming from a thing. Maybe you've got hurt. And we as a church family have got to be on the same page with that. I think we are. And no matter what, we can build bridges to Jesus. Jesus was constantly building bridges with people who someone else had built walls for. He spent time with Gentiles who no Jewish person would ever spend time with. Jesus spent time with ladies, with women, and he treated them as intellectual and social equals in a time when no other man in their culture would have done that. 
Jesus spent time with handicapped and disabled people who had been pushed to the side and were literally begging for alms on the side of the road and laughed at and kicked dirt at and squatted down next to them and said, what do you need, man? Can I help you get some food? Can I help you get to the next place? Can I show you some love? And he showed respect for uh, poor people, people living in poverty. He showed them value that no one else would show them. Jesus was constantly building bridges where other people had built walls. Not to mention the huge wall he tore down with his death, burial, and resurrection. Let me talk about some physical walls that Jesus tore down with the death, burial, and resurrection, the thing we celebrate in a few weeks at Easter. This is what Jesus tore down. There were some physical walls in place. I don't know how much you know about the temple system in Jewish faith, but it's a really important place. There's a building that was in Jerusalem, and once that place gets established, it is literally a series of walls. That's what the temple was. And this is where they considered to be like the most potent place of worship where you would go and give God your praise. But there was like outer walls and you go inside. There was another set of walls that only Jewish people could go past. And then there was another set of walls that only men could go past. And then inside that was an even smaller little room surrounded by these giant curtains that only certain priests could go in at certain times of the year. And yes, people had really good faith and they were able to connect with God. But there was this sense in which God was walled off from the community. You had to have certain things to get into the presence of God. And if you were too far away from those walls, you just didn't have a chance. The whole purpose Jesus came was to bring people near who were far off. And so in his death, he begins to literally tear down walls. I love what Matthew chapter 27 verse 51 says. That at the time of Jesus' death, it says, At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Isn't that awesome? In Jesus' death, he literally had the walls between the Holy of Holies, which is this inner sanctum where the the Ark of the Covenant lived at one time and all kinds of things. Very, very special, historical, and symbolic, and actual spiritual place. This was God set it up. It wasn't fake. But Jesus said, no more. Tears down the walls. He even made the temple itself obsolete. Do you know that the Apostle Peter teaches that when you accept Jesus, you become like a living stone? And it says that we together are living stones being built into a spiritual, spiritual house of worship right now you guys are all bricks in a wall in a very living way you 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 are you are the community of God and you don't have to go to Jerusalem to experience the Holy Spirit right here right now surrounded by believers even if you are far from God in your life right now you're in a place with people who are connecting with God you don't have to fly to Jerusalem you can experience it now So these are physical walls that Jesus tore down, but man, the the figurative wall, the biggest wall that Jesus tore down is this wall of of life and death. There's a lot of places I could quote, but let's look at Romans chapter 6. We look at this a lot. It says, uh, Romans 6 verse 4, we were therefore buried with him, with Jesus, through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, listen, we too might live New life. Life is given to it. It goes back to the Ephesians 2 passage. It says, you were all once dead in your transgressions and sins when you were living in the world, when you were living in your flesh. But because of God's great mercy, he's seated you in the heavenly realms. He's given you grace. He's given you forgiveness. He's given you love. Verse 5 says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. The very wall, the barrier that makes it like life scary Death, dying at the end of your life. He says, listen, don't worry. When your body gives out, your soul will live on in the presence of God. Something there is that doesn't love a wall. It wants it torn down. 
Jesus' mission was to build bridges to the presence of God. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He said, I came to seek and save the lost. He said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus was down in the mud with people. Because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. But he wants to lift us up out of that. So what do we do? What's our response? How do we as a church live in that above and beyond lifestyle? Our challenge this week is simple. The challenge is this. I want to ask you to think of a person in your life who may have walls up between them and God. That's part one. Who's that person? A lot of you already have that person in your mind. You've been praying for them. You've been asking God to guide you towards leading them to him. And the second half is look for a way to help them build a bridge to Jesus. I mean, no one else is going to do it for them, maybe. You, you might be the only person in the world who is caring about that for them right now. Now, maybe not. Maybe you've got a whole community of people praying around them. Maybe they've got, I don't know. Let me see, that might be you this morning. You might have come to this church this morning, and you're like, yeah, I got some walls. And actually, the biggest wall between us and God is our sin. If you haven't accepted Jesus, if you haven't gone into that burial, that death that Romans 4 talks about, baptized into his death to be raised to walk in newness of life, if you haven't made that decision and said, I, I want to I put the old me to death, man, Jesus has offered that that wall can be torn down. He brought a big old sledgehammer with him this morning, <laughs> and he can knock that sucker out for you. And the bridge is there instantly. So maybe it's you. Maybe the person you need to think about is you. Like, how can I build a bridge to Jesus this morning? Let me be bold. Let me ask for help. Maybe that's you. But maybe for you, it's just someone in your life that you just, you care about. And, and uh, I don't know how else to do this, but to give you some ideas, some ways you can build bridges. And the first one I want to suggest to you is that you pray for them. Pray for them. Like, that's the first thing. Because maybe you've tried and like it got, like my friend at the coffee house, you spit right back in your face. You're like, oh, that didn't go well. Uh, in fact, let me suggest this thing. This is a very tangible thing that you could do two or three times this week. How about a prayer walk? A prayer walk is a really interesting habit. It's a good discipline. When you have a prayer walk, basically you say, I'm going to walk this far or in this place or around this block or this many miles or one mile, half a mile, whatever you're up to. And you say, during that time period, I'm going to pray. And so your prayer walk might just be for that person. And if you commit, I'm going to tell you something. You don't, you don't have your mind blown? I'm experiencing it uh, today, actually. It's something that I've been praying about, and this is happening with someone in my life. And I just got a text. It was really cool. Uh, I'll tell you the story later once it's all, when God's done with it. I can't wait to tell you. But it's like there's all these things going on. But like if all you have the courage and the insight to do right now is just pray for someone specifically that they can have walls torn down and bridges built for Jesus. Uh, if you begin to commit to that two, three times a week, every single day, and you do that for a while, I'm going to tell you, it, you will be blown away at what God starts to do. You, you would be surprised. They'll just call you. And you weren't going to call them, but they called you, and they just want to talk about something. You're like, wait a second. Why is God putting this person back in my life? <laughs> how is this happening so a prayer walk maybe you don't have someone in mind specifically you walk around your neighborhood just pray for your neighbor specifically that's that's john i'm going to pray for john and whatever good work wherever you go pray for somebody here's another one host a meal host a meal invite someone over for dinner you know what jesus did a lot of times with people who were very far from him they would just have a meal at one of the disciples house and invite everybody over and they would just eat i mean good things happen over food and, you know, you just wait, and, and there's trust built there, and you have to use your discernment, and, again, the praying piece helps to decide, like, where do, I, where do I cross into some deep conversation? I'm never suggesting that you skip that, but don't underestimate what the Holy Spirit does in someone else's life. Like, if, if you think you want to get in someone's brain and reprogram their soul, good luck with that. 
with the Holy Spirit, man, he gets moving in somebody's life. And so that's the thing. Host a meal. Here's another one. Maybe you're a little more introverted or you don't know what to do. What if you just write that person a thank you letter? There's a reason there on your mind. There's a reason that you care, okay? Just a gratitude letter. And so you're not writing them like, I was reading through the book of 1 John this week, and uh, I was going to exegete this passage for you. And the original Greek says, don't do that. That's weird. Um, thank them for something they've done for you. Hey, I want to thank you for being such a great coworker. You always encourage me when I come to the office. Where's this coming from? It's coming from God's spirit in you, reaching out to them. And it begins to build trust, and it begins to build bridges. Not all bridges are eight-lane superhighway bridges. Some bridges are just a lifeline where I know that I have contact with somebody that loves me. Build bridges. I got another list of things. I won't read them all to you. I just want to encourage you, like, be creative and think outside the box and say, where's the someone in my life that I could help tear down these walls by building a bridge? Because as believers, that's what we're called to do. Jesus' last instruction to his disciples to go into all the world and teaching them everything I've commanded you baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Make disciples of all nations. Like these, are, these are instructions, but we can't do that if we don't even have someone's name in our head. Someone that we're praying for. Someone that we're reaching out to. I don't know if good fences make good neighbors. In fact, the reality at my house is we have some pretty ratty fences <laughs> with some great neighbors. <laughs> but what I do know is that good Christians build bridges to Jesus. And so let's keep tearing down walls and let's keep building bridges so that people can know and be known by God. And that's living above and beyond. Let's pray together this morning.